0: In our evening services for the last couple weeks, I've been preaching on psalms that came out of particular situations in the life of King David. We've used those stories from David's life to think about how we can pray and how we can live as Christians now. I'm going to be continuing that series this morning by reading from 1 Samuel 24 and from Psalm 57. Now, usually we read the whole text at the beginning of sermons, but this morning I'm going to read just a few verses at a time Throughout the message. And hopefully that'll give us a little bit of a feel for the development of the story and the psalm this morning. So I'm going to start this morning by reading just the first two verses of 1 Samuel 24. 1 Samuel 24, verses 1 and 2. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Well, football season is starting soon, and I had football on my mind this week, and somehow I got to thinking about the 2011 season again. For those of you who don't know, I'm a Denver Broncos fan, so Denver Broncos history is always good stuff. And that year, a couple years ago, was the year that the Broncos had Tim Tebow at quarterback. They had a terrible year to begin with, and they finally threw this guy in just to see what would happen. And when they put him in the starting lineup, well, you might call it miracles, but certainly crazy things started happening. With this Tebow at quarterback, the Broncos suddenly started winning games. The first game he started, they were down 15 to 0, and they ended up winning 18 to 15. The next two games, they were way behind late in the fourth quarter, and somehow they won. The next game, they were behind pretty much the whole game. They went to overtime, and they won. They even managed to sneak into the playoffs that year, and they won a game in overtime, of course, in the playoffs. And this string just kept going and going and going. It was amazing how they kept beating the odds week after week. But then finally, the law of averages came back into play, and in the second round of the playoffs, the Broncos just got slaughtered. Tebow played a horrible game, he got really beat up, and the Broncos ended their season with a 45-10 loss, which is something they've kind of gotten into the habit of doing. You can only fight huge odds in any area of life for so long before you will lose big and in 1 Samuel 24, David has been fighting terrible odds for several chapters. You can let some of these details wash over you a little bit, but I want to give you a little bit of David's life story before those couple, ch- couple verses that we read. Ever since chapter 18, Saul has been trying to kill David. He sent David on suicide missions. He sent his soldiers to have David captured and executed David had to run away to a Philistine town, to the town of his enemies, to escape Saul. And then after being there for a little while, he had to keep running because the people there started plotting against him. Eventually, some other exiles, sort of the discontented, the people in debt, those in distress, started gathering around David. So he had a crew to work with, but still he had to run from place to place to place. He hid in a cave for a while, then he had to run to another town, and then he ended up hiding in a forest after that, he saved a whole town from destruction at the hand of the Philistines. But then the town was going to hand him over to King Saul. So David had to keep running. That time, David ended up in a desert with, the, with Saul in hot pursuit. And the Bible says David was running around one side of the mountain and Saul was coming around the other side and about to catch him. But then Saul heard the Philistines had invaded, so he had to go off and deal with that. And then at the beginning of chapter 24, Saul comes back. David is in another desert still running for his life, and people keep informing on him, and King Saul is hot on his tracks again. Now, your head may be spinning a little bit at all that at this point, but the point is that David was really having a miserable time. He has been continually running for his life with Saul in hot pursuit, and it seems like disaster is always just around the corner, and sometimes it literally is just around the corner. David kept having narrow escapes against long odds. And the thing about long odds is that eventually you will come out on the wrong side. You might be able to squeak out narrow escapes and little victories along the way, but eventually you are going to lose. And David knew that if he ever lost that game of hide-and-seek with King Saul, he was a dead man. And as we'll read just a little bit later in 1 Samuel 24, David ends up hiding in the back of a cave, as Saul comes after him in this desert, and that's where Psalm 57 comes into play. So with that as background, let's read the first five verses of Psalm 57. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebu- re- rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends his love and his faithfulness. I am in the midst of lions. I lie among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. And let your glory be over all the earth. Right at that moment, David is literally hiding in the back of a cave. He is desperate for refuge. Saul has been chasing and chasing and chasing him. He's been hotly pursuing David like the third verse of Psalm 57 says. And David feels like he's caught in the midst of lions and ravenous beasts. There's Saul, of course, who is bent on killing him. The spears and arrows and swords that David talks about in these verses are literally things he had to worry about. There was an army coming after him. But at the same time, he has to worry about the sharp tongues of people. Even people who he had delivered from destruction are ready to gossip about him, inform on him, and let Saul know that David is here, and if you come, we will hand him over to you. Everybody seems willing to turn against David. There is no earthly refuge here, and David seems surrounded by calamity. And so the only thing he has left to do is to call out to God for help from the back of this cave that he's hiding in. So Psalm 57 speaks out of David's own life experience, but it also speaks into all of our lives as we experience hardship. All of us have cave moments in our life, moments when the odds are stacked against us, Moments when we've been running and running and running, and it seems like we're finally stuck. Our friends have ditched us, and we're left all alone. You can't make the grade or the cut, and somehow you're left in the cold at school. You get downsized, or you get involuntarily retired, or you just can't work enough to pay the bills. Your kids make some really, really poor choices. The doctor gives you a worst-case diagnosis full of a long list of treatments and side effects. You just can't face getting up to start another morning. The lions are prowling around. Depression, gossip, loneliness, inadequacy, hopelessness. You lie down and you get up in the fear that you will be devoured by your troubles. You're sitting in a spiritual cave holding your breath and hoping that those ravenous beasts pass you by yet again. But the odds are not good. In that moment of darkness and fear and uncertainty, Psalm 57 tells us to call on God. When this life is too much for us, the psalm tells us and models for us calling on God to have mercy. God is our true refuge, our strength, our mighty fortress. And God does not expect us to take on the forces of darkness or to live in this world on our own strength. We can't do it. That's a burden that's too heavy for us to carry, and it's not one that God lays on us either. This is hard for us to hear as independent American people, but in the words of that song that we sang earlier, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with with a load of care? Our precious Savior is still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. When we feel trapped and worn down, we need to turn to the Lord in prayer. The Psalms of lament, the Psalms like this one that cry out to God for help have a lot to teach us. But the first lesson is that when things are not right, we need to call on God. When we're in the darkest caves, when the ravenous beasts are chasing us down, we can find true comfort and peace only, 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 in going to God in lament and prayer. And in David's own experience, God did amazing things in that moment of darkness. Let's go back to 1 Samuel 24, and we'll read verses 3 to 7. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. But Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed or lift my hand against him for he is the anointed of the lord with these words david rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack saul and saul left the cave and went on his way so saul has been unjustly pursuing david for a long time and david is hiding in a cave in the darkness desperately hoping to escape notice And then suddenly, Saul is unexpectedly given into David's hands. David prays, and suddenly his enemy is given to him on a platter. Saul comes into the cave. He assumes a most undignified position, and there he sits. No armor, no weapons to hand, defenseless and totally in the dark. Now David has been living with lions and running away from ravenous beasts and all of a sudden the king of those beasts has come and sat down before him for the slaughter. Saul is in David's hands to do with as he wishes. And talk about an answer to prayer. Salvation is at hand and David's soldiers rejoice. And David sneaks up and he cuts a corner off of Saul's robe while the king is off doing his business. It's hard to know exactly why David did this. On the surface, he's collecting proof that he was that close, really that close to King Saul. On a deeper level, David cutting off that corner of Saul's cloak is a sign that Saul and his family are about to be cut off from the kingship and that David will be the new anointed king of the Lord. But on yet another level, Cutting off that edge of Saul's cloak has some undertones of disrespect and rebellion. David is shaming the king, and he's maybe starting to make the claim that he should be the king instead. So there's all kinds of things swirling around in that situation, some good, not so good. But in the end, David feels conscience-stricken for having cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He rebukes himself for raising his hand against the Lord's anointed, and he refuses to, to let his men attack one of their worst enemies who is helpless before them. David maintains respect for Saul, the Lord's anointed, even when Saul's actions have seemingly disqualified him from any kind of respect or obedience. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I read this story, I identify with David's men. By this point in the story, Saul has become a paranoid, genocidal, murderous, pseudifiable lunatic. This guy is evil, and he is crazy, and somebody has got to do something about it. So why in the world does David just let him go? Clearly, it's not because David had any kind of faith left in Saul. Saul had been after David long enough. He had been treacherous enough. He had been tricky enough. He had done enough evil that David knew he wasn't going to turn around. So David wasn't really looking for anything good out of Saul. He had no faith left in that king. But David did continue to have faith in the Lord God, the true king. The best explanation I can come up with for David's conduct in this story is that he trusted in God's love and God's faithfulness and God's plan above all else. David still believed that the Lord was at work somehow, even in the midst of this terrible chain of circumstances. And so David was going to hold on to God's plan and hold on even to God's anointed king through thick and thin. No matter what happened, David was willing to be in God's hands and to let God work things out in his way. So David put away his weapons and he let Saul go. Now, if we think about this story in the whole of Scripture, this gives us something of a picture of how God works. For just a moment there, David is giving us a glimpse of Jesus, the eternal King. At some point, we are all King Saul. God has appointed all of us to rule over this wonderful world that he has made, and all of us blow it over and over and over again. Now, most people don't turn into murderous lunatics, but we all do our fair share of wrong. None of us this morning could go before God and say, I got everything right, I did what you wanted all the time, and I can lay a claim to perfection and righteousness before you. God had every right to declare us guilty and to pass sentence on us, but when God had us totally at his mercy, he let us go. Just like David looked at Saul and had compassion on him, God looks at us and has compassion on us no matter how bad we are, no matter how much we're missing the point, no matter how much we've fouled up God's plans. Saul was almost a complete failure as king. But in Jesus, we find a perfect, gracious, and unfailing king who never holds our wrongs against us, who always keeps us safe. When we are at God's mercy, he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He doesn't give us what we deserve. So at this point in 1 Samuel, Saul doesn't get what he deserves and he goes on his way. And finally, for the first time in a long time, David and his men are safe. The cave that had started out as a place of desperation and danger turned into a place of opportunity And now it's become a place of refuge. Saul has come and gone. And once again, David and his men have beaten the odds and found safety. In the midst of darkness and fear, David prayed to the Lord and God answered him. God had mercy. God provided refuge for David. Now after this part of 1 Samuel that we read, David goes out after Saul's gotten a fair distance away and yells out to him that, hey, I was here and look what I have. I let you go, free and unharmed. And then Saul admits that he's in the wrong, and the two of them go their separate ways. David lets Saul go, and Saul lets David go. And so the chase ends, and David is safe, at least for the time being. And so we come to the second part of Psalm 57, verses 6 to 11. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make mercy. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness... Reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Now, David says here that his enemies have dug a pit in his path, but they've fallen into it themselves. And that's pretty clearly true of King Saul. He was after David, and he was a merciless hunter. But then, in one surprising moment, the roles are reversed, and Saul becomes the hunted instead of the hunter. David sent out his lament to God, and God heard him and answered. And now David continues to praise God for what he's done, and he declares his continued trust for God. He says he'll raise the roof in praise. He'll send his praises up to the heavens. He'll praise God among all the nations because God's love and faithfulness reach all the way to the sky. Now, things don't always work out quite so quickly, But life does demonstrate this pattern often, that those who dig pits end up falling into them themselves. When my family went on vacation earlier this month, we took along a Winnie the Pooh book on tape. And in that book, Pooh, this bear of very little brain, and little piglet hatch a plot to catch the mythical heffalump, a great, mystical, powerful, fearsome beast of uncertain description. They decide to set a trap, and they they have to think about what to bait it with, And in the end, they decide that honey would be the ideal lure for a heffalump. So they dig a deep pit, they take some of Pooh's honey, and they put it in the bottom. And then they go off and they wait for the heffalump to come and be captured. But Pooh wakes up in the middle of the night, and he is terribly, terribly hungry. So he goes to his pantry to find the honey, and then he remembers. He remembers it's in that trap that they set for this other creature, but he's so, so hungry. So Pooh goes back to bed, and he tosses and turns, but then he gives up, he gets up, and he goes out, and he decides to sneak the bait out of the pit. But of course, in the process of trying to get the honey out, Pooh falls in. The trap he's made to catch another beast has caught him, and at first Pooh doesn't mind, but eventually the honey runs out, And in his desperate quest to clean out the last little bit, Pooh gets his head stuck in the honey jar. And there he sits at the bottom of the trap that he dug with his head stuck in a jar, and he begins to bellow and wail at his fate. And all the woods are full of the sound of this miserably trapped, terribly sad Pooh Bear. Sometimes children's stories have an amazing amount of wisdom and applicability in them. If you dig a pit, you may be the one who falls into it and gets trapped. Now, the Psalms and the other wisdom books of the Bible often give us pretty earthy wisdom like that. They tell us how things are supposed to work, how the world is designed to be. They tell us what should happen. If you dig a pit to catch someone else, it should be no surprise that you fall into it. Those who do evil find evil returning on them. The dishonest businessman who cheats his company and his customers ends up getting forced out And maybe along with losing his job, he even loses his freedom. The liar gets caught in a web of lies. The person who uses popularity as a weapon gets shunted aside when someone yet more popular comes along. The nasty gossiper ends up with terrible stories being told about them. Evil carries within it the seeds of its own destruction. In the end, the wicked get what they deserve. In this psalm, David was in trouble. He prayed for help, and God delivered him. And so David gives thanks and promises to keep trusting the Lord. So for us, the obvious point is that when we're in trouble, we should pray to God our refuge and our strength, and he'll deliver us. And then, of course, when he delivers us, we praise and thank him. But while that's all true, while that basic trajectory of trouble, lament, request for help, deliverance, and thanksgiving generally holds true, sometimes it can seem kind of trite. And kind of simplistic for real life. David had his time of trouble. He prayed. God delivered him. David gave thanks. But what do we do when we're stuck in the middle of that process? What do we do in the between times when we find ourselves stuck calling and calling and calling for help? What do we do when the lions keep circling, when we're still in the darkness of the cave, and when it's hard to find any obvious or objective reason to praise God in the midst of these circumstances? Well, Psalm 57 has something to say to us at this point, too. This morning, I read that psalm in two parts because I wanted us to see the lament and the thanksgiving. Before his deliverance, David cried for help. After his deliverance, he cried out in praise. But really, this is in the Bible as one psalm. And maybe we shouldn't so neatly separate it out into the before and the after. It's impossible for us to know exactly when all these words came together for David and when exactly he wrote things down. But the Bible gives us this psalm as one unified song or prayer. And the form and the shape of this psalm challenge us to wonder whether we can cleanly divide David's call for help and his thanksgiving for deliverance. Perhaps this whole psalm comes together in the midst of David's troubles. Maybe David's laments and his thanksgiving all went up at the same time. In the midst of his trouble, David cried out for help. In the midst of his trouble, David gave thanks to God. Based on God's previous faithfulness and love, David may have been declaring God's faithfulness right in the middle of his troubles. Even as he calls for help, David praises God's love and faithfulness and declares that God is his refuge. David does not send his praises up with postage due. Because of God's faithfulness, David will send up his praise even if he's worried about how circumstances will work out. And there's a lesson for us there. Yes, when we bring our laments to God, we expect him to act. Yes, when we pray and we cry out, well, we let God know that things aren't okay, and we expect him to work at making things okay. But when we pray, we also continue to trust in God. Because we know our God, we praise him even in the hard times. His love endures forever even when we feel stuck at the darkest points in our lives. Just like David, even when we're stuck in the cave, we raise our thanksgiving to God. Even then, God is really our refuge. Forever, God is faithful. No matter what, God is our refuge. This is not an easy thing. I am advocating for a Difficult practice of the faith this morning I'm advocating for a faith that is able to give thanks Even when things aren't going well For a faith that keeps giving thanks that keeps trusting that keeps going to god for refuge Even when disasters descend on us Our god is faithful And so our faith-filled response to trouble in this world is to keep crying out to god in the good times and the bad times. Even if we have trouble day after day after day, God is with us. He is working out his plan in our lives, and he, in the end, will save us from all of our troubles. This story from David's life gives us a picture of terrible things happening in the world. David, who has done no wrong, has to flee and flee and flee And he's finally reduced to cowering in the back of a cave. Calamity follows calamity for him. But even in the midst of his trouble, David didn't turn his back on God. He took the troubles in his life and he brought them before God. He cried out to the Lord, the Lord who had many times over proved loving and faithful. Even in the midst of his troubles, David gave thanks to God and witnessed to his goodness. And we can continue to do that today not because we just hold on tight and we bear down and we praise God because we have to. We can praise God because our forever king, our Lord and Savior Jesus, suffered everything on our behalf. God is not just up in heaven. God is here on earth, and he is at work in our lives to keep us safe no matter what disasters befall us. Life is hard, Faith is hard. But the Bible gives us stories that can shape our prayer and that can shape our living. Today and every day, may we find our refuge in the Lord our God and may we be witnesses to God's love and to his faithfulness even in the midst of our own times of struggle.